Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness towards us and your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for the, the great love that you have for us, um, regardless of our deeds or merit, which, you know, we have no merit. Uh, we pray that you would bless this sermon and that um, we would get a good understanding um, of our responsibility to lead our hearts and of your grace and empowerment to do so, Lord. We pray that um, you would bless us with wisdom and we would gain things from the sermon. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we're wrapping up the series we've been doing called How to Lead Your Heart. So this sermon is just a conclusion and summary of the 10-part series we've been going through. So this series has been an attempt to do a foundationally comprehensive training course on how to lead your heart. And that might be something that doesn't get talked about much, but leading your heart is something we're called to do as Christians, and it's an important thing. Um, in order to, um, to live life as a Christian, you have to, in some sense, lead your heart. So for the purposes of this series, we've been defining the heart as uh, the part of you that has beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions. So the first thing I want to review um, is just... Again, hitting why it's so important that we learn to lead our hearts. So let's look at a few, a few scriptures for that. First, let's look at Proverbs 4, verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart, uh, not passively, but with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. He's saying that everything in your life comes from your heart. It comes out of your heart, in a sense. And we'll, we'll explain that in a bit. Uh, but first, let's look at Luke uh, 6, verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart... His mouth speaks. What determines what you say? What fills your heart? Let's look at Mark 7, verse 21. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Oh, I'm sorry, I read the wrong one. Uh, Mark 7, 21. For from, for from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, and acts of adultery. The Bible seems to be convinced that our problem with sin is a heart problem. But anyways, there's a few reasons why it's really important that we learn to lead our hearts. Let's look at the first one. Everything in your life comes, flows from your heart. So I would break this down in two ways. Number one, everything you say and do, every choice you ever make is determined by what's in your heart. Your beliefs, 
your desires and your emotions all affect how you make decisions. So much so, there isn't a single choice that you make that isn't because of at least one of those four things, beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions. If there's something that you don't believe is worth choosing, and you don't have a desire to choose it, and you don't have any intention to choose it, and you also don't feel like choosing it, you're not going to choose it. And if, um, if you do choose to do something, you either believed it was worth doing, or you desired to do it, or you had the intention of doing it, or you felt like doing it. Every decision you ever make, ever, has to do with at least one of those four things. So, you know, what's in your heart is important because it's going to affect everything you say and do. So that's one way in which um, everything in your life flows from your heart. Every single choice you ever make flows from your heart. But another way in which I think... Um, you know, what's in your life flows from your heart, is what's in your heart really affects the quality of your life. It's the biggest determiner of the quality of your life. The biggest factor uh, that affects whether or not a person is happy is whether or not they can be content in life. You can have all the money and all the relationships and everything that most people would want, and if you're discontent and anxious and insecure, you're not going to be happy. And you could be dirt poor, but if you have contentment and a sense that God loves you and confidence, you'll be happy. Your quality of life flows from what's in your heart. It is the biggest factor in whether or not a person can be happy in life. If your emotions and your desires are ruling your life, there's no way you'll be as happy as you could be if you were in charge, if you were ruling your life with self-control instead of letting your desires and emotions lead you. So that's the first reason why it's very important that we learn to lead our hearts. The second reason... Um, is that heart change is the central issue of sanctification. Heart change is the central issue of sanctification. Let's look at Matthew 15, verses 10 through 20. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. If one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet, Jesus asked, anything you eat passes through the stomach and goes into the sewer, but the words you speak come from the heart, that's what defiles you. 
For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Let's also, so that talks about how, you know, the sin problem has to do with we have sinful hearts. Just like every decision we ever make comes out of our hearts, the reason we choose sin is because we have sinful hearts. So that's one way in which heart change is the central issue of sanctification. (laughs) Christian growth. Sanctification means Christian growth. Um, let's look at Hebrews 10, verse 16. This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. So not only is the problem that our hearts are warped and sinful, uh, so much so that there's nothing we can do about it, but the solution is heart change. The solution is heart change that we need God's divine empowerment for. We need God to write his law on our hearts. The only, person, the only way a person can change is if their heart changes. Any other change will be short-lived. If you've ever, um, you know, been babysitting or taught a Sunday school class with little children, and you try to manipulate them with candy, that change is short-lived. As soon as the candy is gone, it's right back to it. Right back to yelling or beating their sister or, you know, what have you. Because heart change is what's necessary. Not only that, but heart change is what God values because obedience that isn't from the heart is dishonoring to God. Even if a person obeys, but they, it's not from their heart, like they do it begrudgingly, they obey, but they don't really want to, that's dishonoring to God. Let's look at Matthew 5, 27 through 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is saying that even if a person outwardly keeps God's law, but they don't actually want to in their hearts, God considers that sin. To, diso- to want to disobey God is sin. It dishonors God. So in the first uh, sermon of this series, we went a little bit more in depth. Since this is just a summary conclusion, uh, we're not going as much into depth. But heart change is the central issue of sanctification. And if you would like to hear more about that, you can listen to the first sermon in the series on our website. Because uh, we had like dozens of verses to look at. But heart change is the central issue of sanctification. So... Us learning to lead our hearts by God's empowerment is very important.
so that um, was kind of the first part of the series. But then the, the other main point of this series is how to lead your heart. That's why we call the series How to Lead Your Heart. And um, I've mentioned five habits that if a person gets these five habits, I think they will be competent to lead their heart. And these five habits will be very helpful in learning to lead your heart. So the first one is having an attitude of responsibility and intentionality about leading your heart. So this one is probably the easiest. All you really have to do is just understand and remember that you are responsible to lead your heart. But just to make that even easier, let's prove it from Scripture. So we already looked at uh, Proverbs 4.23 saying, Watch over your heart with all diligence. Um, some translations say guard your heart or keep your heart. All diligence doesn't sound very passive. That sounds like something we should be intentional about. Let's look at uh, Proverbs 23 verse 19. Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. So Solomon is telling his son to direct his heart. And the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the scriptures, is saying we should direct our hearts in the ways of God. Let's look at another example from the Proverbs. Proverbs 6.25. You know, speaking of... In, in the only early chapters of Proverbs, Solomon is warning his sons against adultery. So speaking of a hypothetical woman who would want to commit adultery with them, do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. So he's saying don't desire something. That, to me, sounds like you're going to have to lead your heart. Let's look at uh, one last example of how the scriptures say that we're responsible for leading our hearts. Let's look at Luke 12, uh, 33 through 34. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, the desires of your heart will be also. So we don't, in some sense, have direct control over our desires necessarily, um, but we can direct them. We have indirect control over them. Jesus is saying, do something with your actions, change your actions this way, because it will affect your heart. It will affect the desires of your heart. So as, a Christian, as Christians, we are charged by God as responsible for leading our hearts. When we sin, we can't just use the excuse, I'm sorry, God, I, I wanted to do it. Nothing I could do. That's not an acceptable excuse. You are responsible, charged by God for leading your heart. So we need to be intentional about it. I probably 
speak about intentionality in at least half the sermons I do, because in general, it's helpful. Because our hearts aren't just going to naturally go where they should. Our desires don't just naturally go in the direction they should. Typically, our desires go to pretty bad places naturally. So we have to be intentional about directing them. So that's habit number one of the five habits that will help a person to lead their heart. Having an attitude, habitually having an attitude of responsibility and intentionality about leading your heart. The second habit that I think will be helpful is having a habit of discerning and judging what's in your heart. So what do I mean by that? Um, By discerning, I mean just knowing what's in your heart. Sometimes it's easy to not be very in touch with yourself and to not really know what you feel or what you desire. I mean, we've all been there. Um, Sometimes you're mad and you don't know what you're mad about or, you know, why you're mad or you want something and you don't know why you want it or you feel something and you don't know why you feel it. So by discerning what's in your heart, just knowing what your desires are, knowing what your emotions are, knowing what your intentions and your beliefs are, sometimes we don't even know what our beliefs are. But that's just being a finite human. And by judging what's in your heart, I mean not just knowing what's in your heart, but knowing whether or not it's good or bad, helpful or unhelpful. So in order to effectively lead your heart, you need to know what's in your heart. How are you going to watch over your heart if you don't know what's in it? If you don't know what's in your heart, it's going to be hard to try to direct it in the way that it should go. If something needs improved or changed, you won't know about it if you don't know what's in your heart. And if you did have a sense that something needs changed, it'd be very hard to tell whether or not it has changed if you don't ever bother to think about what's in your heart, if, you don't, if you're not in the habit of discerning and judging what's in your heart. So the more accurately and detailed you can perceive what's going on in your heart, what your beliefs are, what your intentions are, what your desires are, what your emotions are, the more equipped you are to direct your heart, to direct those things. So discerning what's in your heart is very important. It's going to be almost impossible to lead your heart if you never know what your beliefs and desires and intentions and emotions are. So discerning what's in your heart, but also judging what's in your heart. In order to manage your heart well, you have to know which desires, intentions, and emotions are good or helpful, and which ones are bad or unhelpful. If you don't know when anger is helpful and when anger is harmful, how are you going to direct your heart in that area? Anger is not universally bad. Sometimes a lack of anger can be bad. Anger is also not universally good. So if you know you're angry and you know why, but you don't know whether or not it's good that you're angry, that's not very helpful.
If you don't know what the Bible says about what you should and shouldn't desire, how are you going to direct your heart towards submission to God? So the more we know about what's good or bad, what's helpful or hindersome, the more equipped we are to be able to lead our hearts. We need to be able to discern whether or not, you know, desires are good or bad, helpful or unhelpful. And a lot of times that doesn't necessarily have to do with the desire itself, but the amount of desire you have. If I want pizza, that's fine and good and well. But if I want pizza more than anything else in life, that's a problem. If I want pizza more than I want to see my son, that's a problem. So not just certain desires can be good or bad, but certain amounts of desire can be good or bad. But if you want to know more about how to discern and judge what's in your heart, then you can go on our website and check out parts two through five of this series. We talked a lot about how to develop that type of discernment. We also talked about various heart issues to watch out for, and we talked about how to understand certain emotions and know whether or not uh, they're good or bad, helpful or unhelpful in particular instances. And, you know, that's a, a very important habit. You really can't learn to direct your heart if you can't discern and judge what's in your heart. So if you would like more help with that, you can re-listen to parts 2 through 5 on our website, or you can uh, talk to me at lunch. Habit three of the habits that help a person to lead their heart. Resisting bad desires and emotions. So we all have, you know, bad desires and uh, emotions that aren't good or that are out of touch with reality. And they're not going to change overnight. In the, in the meantime, we have to do something about that. We have to resist them. You can't just give in just because your desires and emotions don't change. Because they're not going to change right away. If I want to spend all the money I have on things I don't need, and I'm, I'm trying to direct my heart out of that desire, and it doesn't happen, so I'm just like, well, maybe tomorrow I'll stop spending all my money on things I don't need. That's not a good approach. We have to learn to resist in the meantime, even though it's a struggle. We need to be able to resist bad desires and emotions while they're still there, even if they don't go away, because they're not going to go away right away. Learning to lead your heart is a process and a struggle. And if we don't resist them, we're less likely to change them. If I'm afraid of public speaking and I never resist that fear, I'm much less likely to get over it. If I responded to fear of public speaking by just not doing public speaking, I'll never get over it. If I respond to fear of something by avoiding it, I'm just reinforcing the idea that it's too risky or too scary. I'm making that belief stronger. 
If a person has an addiction to something and they don't resist any of their desires for it, they're just strengthening their desires for that thing. So if we don't resist bad desires and emotions, we're less likely to change them. We're also going to make bad decisions. If you just give in to all of your fears instead of resisting them, you're going to miss out in life. You're going to miss out on opportunities. You're going to miss out in relationships. If we, if we don't learn to resist bad desires and emotions, resist letting them control us, we're going to make bad decisions in life. So that's habit number three. Habit number four that a person should have if they want to learn to lead their heart is we need to regularly, intentionally, and strategically be seeking to renew our minds. God's word calls us to renew our minds, and it's one of the primary ways our hearts change is by him renewing our minds. I shouldn't necessarily say God calls us to renew our minds. God calls us to participate. God's renewing our minds, but he calls us to participate. Let's look at uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So God is the one who's renewing our minds, but he calls us to participate. That's why Paul gives a command, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. God is the one doing the renewal, but we need to participate. And we'll get in a second into a few ways we can participate in that. But, you know, one of the big reasons God transforms us by renewing our minds is because your thinking determines what's in your heart. Everything that's in your heart is there because of your thinking. It's because of your thoughts. Our thinking determines what's in our hearts. So our hearts have four things, beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions, and our thoughts determine all of those. Our thoughts determine our beliefs. A belief is just a thought that you have, something you think is true, that you're willing to put enough weight on to live as if it's true. You can't believe something without thinking it. So your beliefs are determined by your thoughts. Your desires are also determined by your thoughts. I desire to work. I would say go to work, but I work from home. Um... But I desire to get up in the morning and work because I think that I'll get paid for it. If I didn't think that I'd get paid for it, I wouldn't desire to, you know, get up and work in the morning. Or at least not at the job that's not paying me. All of your desires are determined by your thinking. If we have a desire to sin, it's because we think that the enjoyment of that sin will be more significant than the consequences of it will be. So 
So your desires are determined by your thinking. Your intentions are determined by your thinking. If I intend uh, to buy a car, and I do, I actually need one, uh, that intention is based on thinking. It's because I think it's worth it for me to buy a car. And all of your emotions, lastly, are determined by your thinking. Any emotion you have is based on thoughts that you have. You can't have an emotion that isn't based on thoughts. Fear, fears are based on thoughts. Um, you know, one random example of a fear, sometimes I'm watching TikTok and they'll show a, a first-person video of someone like walking on the roof of a skyscraper on the ledge. That actually makes me feel a little afraid. Fear of heights. But uh, that's based on a thought. If I wasn't thinking about heights, I wouldn't feel afraid. Fear is always uh, determined by a thought that there's risk of harm. Risk of something bad happening. Anger is always based on thoughts. You know, if I'm trying to change lanes, and I, you know, I'm, trying to change lanes and then someone won't let me in and I start to think that they're purposefully trying to keep me from changing lanes, I'll get mad at that person. But that anger is based on a thought, a thought that I have about their intentions. I think they're purposefully trying to keep me from changing lanes. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't be mad. So all your emotions are based on your thinking. That's why you can't afford to follow your emotions. You can't afford to just think that something's true because you feel like it's true. Because everything you feel is based on your thoughts. So if you decide to think things based on your feelings, then you've created a loop. And you're just running in circles. You think it because you feel it, and you feel it because you think it, and it has nothing to do with reality, necessarily. It's just a loop. So we can't afford to be following our feelings. We need to lead our hearts. We need to direct our hearts. But anyways, the point of that, everything that's in our hearts is determined by our thoughts. It's determined by our thinking. So that's why God calls us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. God is in the process of mind renewal in the business of mind renewal. But he wants us to participate in it. Mind renewal does take intentionality and effort. I like to describe uh, sanctification or Christian growth as being caused by supernaturally empowered effort. There isn't Christian growth without effort, and there also isn't Christian growth without supernatural empowerment. Christian growth always happens because of supernaturally empowered effort from working in cooperation with God and relying on him. But it's not passive. So let's look at some ways to be intentional about participating in God renewing our minds. Number one, spend regular time in God's word. So mind renewal doesn't happen right away. It's not going to happen overnight. One thing um, that I think is kind of interesting, I was looking at the Greek word for renewal in this verse. I don't remember how to pronounce it, 
but one of the ways it could be translated is renovation. Mind renovation. That's an interesting way to think of it. Renovation, you hear it and you get the sense. It's not something that happens in five seconds. I've never seen renovations go super quickly. Typically, they're painful and mistakes happen, and they always take longer than you think they will. Yeah. Yep, and describing it as a house. But mind renovation is a process, and it's a long process. God wants to renovate your mind. But it's not going to happen right away. It takes repetition and daily work. And, I, you know, I like to use exercise as an example. Um, you can't just exercise once or even once a week and expect to be a really fit person. It takes multiple times per week, every week. It takes consistency. It takes repetition. Renovating your body takes repetition and consistency. Renovating your mind takes repetition and consistency. You know, the scripture talks about how regularly we need the scripture. Let's look at Joshua 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. He says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That sounds pretty regular. That sounds like consistency is important. Let's look at Psalms 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We need consistency in the scriptures. So that's, you know, number one, spend regular time in God's word. Number two, Spend time trying to discover um, what strongholds of wrong thinking you might have and trying to tear them down. Uh, We talked about that in Sermon 8 of this series, and if you would like more information on what I mean by a stronghold of wrong thinking, I don't have time to get into it now, but you can check out Part 8 of this series on our website. Number three, don't merely read the scriptures, but also study them deeply. We need to be in God's word regularly, but we should do more than just read it. We should seek to really get to know it and really integrate it with our minds, with our thinking. You know, when, when you see a command in the scriptures, something that can be helpful to do for integrating it with your thinking is make a, think about all the reasons or make a list of reasons why obeying that command is worth it. And then... Try to get them integrated into your thinking. Memorize them. And then when you go about life and you think in an opportunity to steal something comes up, you'll think, oh yeah, stealing's not worth it. That's a way to try to intentionally integrate God's word into your thinking. We want to read the scriptures, but we want to do more than just read them. We want to do anything we can to integrate them into our thinking. 
Number four, we should memorize and meditate on the scriptures. Memorizing something is a really good way to integrate it into your thinking. And I need to do better at this myself. I tend to um, sometimes start a Bible memory habit and then forget about it. But uh, it, it's helpful. Memorizing God's word is helpful for participating in mind renewal. And uh, lastly, number five of how we can participate in God renewing our minds is applying you know, biblical principles to your life and choices. So here's an interesting thing to think about. Not only does your thinking determine your actions, but your actions affect your thinking. Your actions affect your thinking. When you read Proverbs saying, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich, if you read it and don't do anything about it, then you're mentally reinforcing the idea that it isn't true, or it doesn't apply to you, or it's not that important. Your actions affect your thinking. But if you read it and you do something about it, you're mentally reinforcing the idea that it's worth taking you account in your daily life. Applying God's word is part of the mind renewal process. So that's habit number four. The fifth habit that is very helpful in uh, learning to lead your heart is relying on God and engaging in spiritual warfare. We need God's power in order to lead our hearts. So in order to do our best with leading our hearts, we need to take full advantage of the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of worship, the power of prayer and fasting, and the power of deliverance. Uh, In last week's sermon, we looked at each of these individually and how they can make a difference and empower us. God designed us to rely on him. That's part of the reason why God in his sovereignty allows us to have struggles. It'd be pretty nice to not have struggles, and God is sovereign. God could cause it so we don't have struggles, but he chooses to allow them. And when I talk about that, I usually look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So Paul is saying, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So last week we talked about uh, what does it mean God's power is perfected in weakness? God doesn't get more power. God has all power that could possibly be had. God has infinite power. God's power is best shown through human weakness. So knowing that the reason God allows us to have weaknesses is so that we can rely on him, we should rely on him. 
We should make use of those weaknesses. Paul valued his weaknesses because God showed God's power through them. God has much power to give us. Let's look at Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There's nothing that God doesn't have um, enough power to do. God has the power to do everything. And God has power to empower you. There's no weakness you have, no struggle you have that's too great. No struggle of any sin is too great that God couldn't empower you to overcome it. No addiction, no struggle with doubts or with fears or with rejection. None of it is too great that God couldn't empower you to overcome it. But God wants you to seek him, to rely on him. He wants you to seek him in prayer and rely on him in practical ways. Because that's how God's power is seen through our weakness. We get supernatural power through worship and through prayer and through being filled with his spirit. And we need to seek that out. The other thing we talked about last week is, um, you know, demonic oppression is real and does get in the way of heart change. But God's power can overcome that as well. And we we need God's power for overcoming that. There are specific types of demons that try to cause specific types of struggles. We looked at some examples of that that we'll quickly revisit. Uh, because of time, we're not going to read the entire passage, but you know, in 1 Kings 22, verses 13 through 23, uh, it talks about how there was a spirit of lying or a deceitful spirit that... Um, went to Ahab's prophets and inspired them to lie to Ahab. And then in Acts 16, verse 16, um, as they were going to the place of prayer, they were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Divination is a specific thing, and it's a sin. So there are, There really are evil spirits that try to cause certain types of struggles or sins. But by God's grace, by God's power, we have authority over demons. And that's something we need to take advantage of. So those are the five habits. Having an attitude of responsibility and intentionality about leading your heart. Having a habit of discerning and judging what's in your heart, of spending time thinking about it. Having a habit of resisting and fighting against your bad desires and emotions, even though they're not going away right away. Having a habit of spending time in God's word and intentionally and strategically seeking to renew your mind and to get involved and to participate in that process. Having a habit of relying on God in prayer and in worship and on seeking to be filled with his spirit. If a person has these habits, 
They'll have God's power for leading their heart. We need all five of these habits if we want to really be able to lead our hearts. So in conclusion, you know, one of the biggest points in this series is that, um, you know, a point I'll keep repeating, I guess not actually because this is the end of the series, but let's repeat it one more time. You are responsible for leading your heart. You are charged by God is responsible for leading your heart. And you need to take responsibility for that. Number two, you need to seek to rely on God for strength. Leading our hearts isn't something we can do very effectively without God. We might be able to make some progress, but it's, it's going to be in sinful directions, typically, or always, really, if it's without God. Like a, a non-Christian might be able to direct their heart to be more diligent and to work harder, but they're going to be doing it for the sake of their own pride. And so that they can, you know, have more money to spend on themselves. They're going to do it um, out of selfishness. But we need to seek to rely on God for strength. Number three, we need to intentionally seek to renew our minds or to participate in God renewing our minds. It's not going to happen much without our participation. We need to be intentional. And number four, and this one's very important, We need to be patient and to remember God's grace. During the struggle, it can be easy to get discouraged. And as Sam Shane Poon mentioned earlier today, as we struggle ongoingly with sin, to feel like, oh, I sinned again. I've sinned so many times. It's not going anywhere. But we need to remember God's grace. God is the prodigal father. He doesn't care that we... um, You know, we wasted our inheritance and squandered it on purpose. God loves us unconditionally. God loves Christians unconditionally, his adopted children. He loves us unconditionally. And nothing, no amount of failure can change that. We need to remember that God will be gracious towards us no matter how many times we fail. So... Uh, Similar to that, let's get to our communion meditation. Let's look at uh, John 8, 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our hearts are enslaved to sin apart from Christ. The only thing that can change that is Christ. The only thing that can change that is Christ. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, truly free. And it's a gift that he gives freely out of love. There's no way to earn it. You don't, you know, wait to come to Christ to be set free until you're good enough. That's impossible. You're never going to be good enough. 
you can't be good while you're enslaved to sin. You can't even really be good while you're not enslaved to sin. Because, you know, our, our righteousness would never be enough. But you definitely won't be good enough while you're enslaved to sin. We should never wait to come to God for his grace, ever. We should never wait to come to God for grace. So as we come to the table, let's come thankfully that Christ sets us free and thank him for his grace.